You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. One of the most amazing events in the United States of America takes place on the 20th of January every four years when we witness the inauguration of the president-elect of the United States of America. If you've ever watched, which I assume you have, one of those inaugurations, it's a sight to behold. The setup, the, 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 the plans that go into it, the, uh, the whole process of it, it's, it's an amazing thing to watch. The 20th Amendment to the Constitution specifies that the term of each elected president of the United States begins at noon on January 20th of the year following the election. And each president must take the oath of office before assuming the duties of his position. So basically, this is what happens at the inauguration. The inauguration makes public what is already decided privately, right? So we've already voted, we've already decided who the next president will be, and then we have this inauguration that sets that in motion, that makes this private thing become public. The word inauguration itself means the beginning or introduction of a system, policy, or period. So today, as we tune into Matthew's News Network, we come to the inauguration of Jesus's public ministry. And we'll see his inauguration in this way as Matthew shows it to us. His inauguration takes place in this. There's preparation for it. There's the affirmation of the inauguration and then temptation. Today, we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 3. We'll walk through those 17 verses. And the next week, we'll come back to the second part of the inauguration, the temptation. But this is Matthew laying out for us Jesus' public ministry. He's going from privately just living his life as Mary and Joseph's son to now he is going public with his ministry. And this is the inauguration, the beginning of this time period where Jesus' life will be on display for us to see. So I would like for you to stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Or open your phone or your iPad and, and go to Matthew, your, your uh, Bible app. Go to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, through it, 17 verses. And uh, I want you to follow along as I read out loud, follow along quietly. I want you to know as we go into this that we ended last Sunday in chapter 2 with Jesus headed to Nazarene and to be a Nazareth. And that's where our story ended with him. He was maybe two, three year old at the time. And as we come to Matthew chapter 3... Matthew moves us ahead 27 years, all right? So we've moved ahead 27 years now, 27, 28 years in Jesus' life as we come 
to the beginning of chapter 3. So he's no longer, don't view him as a toddler anymore right now. He's a man, he's about 29 to 30 years old, and he's about to begin his public ministry. And this is what we find of Jesus' inauguration. Chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming up, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees and every tree Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is, not, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His Winonian fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity that we get to study it together today. And so our prayer, as our prayer is every Sunday, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see you from your word today so that when we see you, we'll be transformed by you. So please do that again today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we begin this inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, we noticed a man, a new character in this story, a man by the name of John the Baptist, and we notice his message. So I want us to look at this man, first of all, and then we'll look at his message this man, his name is John the Baptist, and you find him in the first verse. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John was a common name in that time, and so the authors of Scripture chose to add the term the Baptist in there so that we could identify who this John was as opposed to other Johns in the Bible or other Johns in that time. And John is known for baptizing. 
And so he was referred to as John the Baptist. John was Jesus's cousin. You find this story in Luke chapter one. If you want to go read the story, that that's when they initially meet each other is when they're in the womb of John, Jesus is in the womb of Mary and John is in the womb of Elizabeth. That is where they meet each other because when Mary comes in on the scene, the Bible says that, that John leaps in her womb. It's like, I know who that is. But other than that, we don't know anything about their connection. It is assumed that Jesus and John were distant cousins. They were cousins, but the kind that they didn't hang out with each other, right? That they were in separate spots. Maybe throughout their life, they would spend some time together. But for the most part, until they meet each other here again, they haven't spent time with each other. So this is John the Baptist. He's a preacher, the cousin of Jesus. And why is he significant in the story of Jesus? Well, we find that in verse three. It says, for this is he, John the Baptist, who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And that's found in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse three that said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John is the final prophet that God will use to lay the groundwork for Jesus's coming. And so John is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that he, uh, there would be one who would come who would prepare the way for the Messiah, who would prepare the way for the anointed king. John is the fulfillment of that. So this is, this is who, why he's on the scene because God is using John to be this prophet who would come and lay the groundwork for Jesus's life. If you go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, in chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6, you find that this prophecy that had come 400 years earlier. So you got a picture for them. It'd been 400 years, the Jewish people, without a prophet. It'd been a season of quietness of wondering, not hearing from the Lord. And so 400 years earlier, Malachi the prophet said this, Behold of God, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Malachi had prophesied that there would be someone who would come like Elijah the prophet who would come and prepare the way for Jesus to come. And so it leads us then to verse 4, which shows us that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. It says in verse 4, Now John wore garments of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. And we think to ourselves, what a weird dude, right? Like, he's, why would anybody go out to hear John the Baptist preach in the wilderness? He's a little different, a little off, but even what he's wearing is fulfillment of the prophecy that he would be the Elijah who would come. Because if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, you find this story about Elijah. And they're trying to describe who this guy is, Elijah. So they answered and said to him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist 
And they said to him, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So even by what Elijah was wearing, they knew that he was a prophet. So John the Baptist wearing the same clothes is fulfilling prophecy that even in what he is wearing, he is fulfilling prophecy that he would be the Elijah who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. Then in verse four, we find of, of, of verse five and following, we find who John the Baptist is. Then he goes into Jerusalem and all Judea and the regions about the Jordan going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So we find what he's doing. He's baptizing. His people are coming to him. They're repenting of their sins and they're being baptized. And this was a big deal that they were being baptized because if you were baptized in that first century, in that time when Jesus and John the Baptist are coming on the scene here, if you were a Jew being baptized, that was a big deal because Jews didn't get baptized. Only Gentiles got baptized. So if you were a Jew, you're from the seed of Abraham, you're a part of the family, you did cleansings, but you didn't go into the water and dip yourself in the water and come out of the water. Only Gentiles did that because what Gentiles were doing is they were saying that they were renouncing their former way of life. That they were no longer separate from the family of God. Now they were a part of the family of God and baptism was a visible display of that. That they were now followers of Yahweh. They were followers of this Jewish God. And so they were the only ones, but you see in the story that Jews and Gentiles are coming out and they're being baptized by John. This is why it was such a big deal. It was like, who is this guy that, that Jews and Gentiles are like are going out in the wilderness, which was a good distance and being baptized, dipped in the water and coming out of the water by him. Then in verse 11, you find the humility of John the Baptist. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming, the Messiah, Jesus, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. So as John the Baptist is preaching this message of repentance, he says to his audience, listen, I'm not the end all here. I'm not the one you're coming to worship, the one you're coming to follow. I am simply a voice in the wilderness pointing you to the one who is to come. And I want you to know about the one who is to come. I'm not even worthy to hold his sandals. So if you were to go in a house in that time, the lowest job that a person could have in that time was when they would walk into a house, you would take off their sandals and you would hold their sandals until they wanted their sandals back. And then when they wanted their sandals back, you would put the sandals back on your feet. That was the lowest job that you could do. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to do that job for him. That's how great this one who is coming after me. That's humility. This guy that's preaching in the wilderness in these weird clothes and eating weird things and a fulfillment of prophecy and as people are coming out to him, he's not making it about him. He's making it about the one who is to come. In fact, listen to how Jesus describes John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, he talks about him and he says this, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So he's saying, John didn't come the way you thought he would come, right? Nice clothes, sort of in the temple, like let's go, that's the way to go, right? Sort of got it figured out. No, John's in the wilderness wearing these weird clothes and eating weird things. He's separate from you and yet you went out to see him. Why did you go out to see him? He said in verse 9, what then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I am send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. And truly I say to you, and listen to Jesus' words of John the Baptist, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise for this guy. That he would say there's no one greater. But I love that John the Baptist had the humility to know even though God was using him in a really significant way in his story that he was humble enough to say I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of the king around. This is the humility of John and this is who I would say to you Jesus chooses to use. Jesus chooses to use people that are humble, that see themselves in light of who God is. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If I'm looking in my life and there's not a sense in which God is using my life, then maybe there's elements of pride in my life. That I've made it about me and my story rather than making it about him and his story. God chooses to use John the Baptist because he knew that John the Baptist would have this heart of humility to say, it's not about me. In fact, John will say later, he must increase and I must decrease. He must become more prevalent and I must become less. This is the type of people that God chooses to use. So this is the man that God prepared to set the stage, to prepare the inauguration of his son into public ministry. Then you go to verse 12 and you have the, uh, uh, yeah, then you go to verse, or sorry, I've got to go back. That's the man. Let me get to the message. I don't want to miss the message. I almost jumped ahead and we could have got out of here really soon uh, today <laughs> if I would have jumped to verse 13, but I won't do that. Let me go back because this is a really important piece of this man. The man and then his message. Look at verse 2 you find the message that John came preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This idea of repent is in the meaning of the word is to change one's mind or to be sorry for something. But when you see the word repent in the Bible, it carries with it a heavier feeling than just being sorry for something or changing one's mind. The word repent in the Bible, yes, means this intellectual change of mind, but it also leads to a radical transformation of the entire person. That everything in our life, the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, everything about our lives is transformed when we repent. And all of that is wrapped into this word 
repentance. It is a sorrow for sin that leads to a change of lifestyle, meaning our motives, our desires, our conduct, all of that is changed when we repent. So just to hear the word repenting as a change of mind, what has weightier implications than that in our lives? It is a 180 in our lives, in essence, that we are going one way, and when we repent, we go the opposite direction. That's not a 360, but a 180 turned about. That we're going towards our sin, we're going towards destruction, we're going away from God, And then when we repent, it's this change of mind that we turn and we go towards God and our lives are transformed by him. This is the repentance that John is calling his audience to. He's preaching in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is saying transformation should come in your life. You should see yourself in light of who God is and be transformed by that and repent of that in the fact that you are a sinner and you don't line up, but through God's grace, you can. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does a kingdom imply? A kingdom implies that there is a king, right? And this is John, or this is Matthew helping us today be reminded of the theme that Jesus is king, right? This is what he's pushing us for. And so even in John's message of repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's pointing us to the fact that there is a king who is coming and who has come and he's going to set up his rule and reign. What's interesting about this term that John chooses, or Matthew, sorry, I keep saying John. I mean, John uses, but Matthew's writing This term that he uses, kingdom of heaven, he is the only author of the gospels that uses the term kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, John, they use the term kingdom of God. So why would Matthew choose to not use the term kingdom of God and use the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's because Matthew knew his audience was mainly Jewish people. And Jewish people, when you would use the name God, that was a really holy thing to do. So you only used the name God in certain settings. So they would use other terms that would help you be referring to God without using his name. And so they choose to use this term kingdom of heaven. So it's saying the same thing that other authors of scripture are saying by kingdom of God. But they're saying kingdom of heaven because John knows his audience and he doesn't want to offend his audience by using the term God. Because he wants them to repent and return to Christ and God as the ruler of their hearts and their lives. So this is the message that he brings. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This rule and reign of Christ. But then verse 7 he says, But when he saw many of Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. So as Matthew's recording this for us, he says, Here's John out baptizing, preaching this message of repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of a sudden these... Pharisees and Sadducees come out to John's baptism. These Pharisees and Sadducees are, are there, these kinds of people. A Pharisee was a self-righteous person who followed the law externally perfectly. 
So they were very much legalistic to the core. They, we would use terms like they were conservative today, all right? So the, the Pharisees were very conservative, very law-oriented externally in, in a way. I mean, internally they were not, but externally you keep the law. What, what's interesting is these Pharisees were loyal to themselves. So it wasn't really about following God and obeying his rules. It was about them and their rules, it was about them being better than everyone else. So Pharisees were, they were off by their own. Um, nobody could really measure up to them. That, that's kind of the mentality that they, 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 they were better than everyone else. But then you had this, the Sadducees who were the other end of this pendulum swing and they were liberals. They lived for the here and now. So they were all about the current moment, the needs of the community. They were all about not the law, but, but this, like, let's take care of our community. They, they, were, they were the kind of people that they ran the temple complex. So if you were going to the temple, they were the one taking care of the temple complex. And they had a lot of power and they used that power for their own good. They were loyal to themselves as well, just like the, the Pharisees were. It was about them, not about God, and their freedom from the rules. So the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other, but they together hated Jesus. And we're going to find this throughout scripture. So the only way that they would come together was in regards to their hatred for Jesus because they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. You're a conservative, you're a liberal, we don't like each other, you follow the law perfectly, you don't follow the law at all, you both take pride in that, but hey, we hate Jesus together. So we're gonna see throughout Matthew that these Pharisees and Sadducees come together a lot of times to go after Jesus, even though in real life they didn't like each other at all. So this is what they're doing. They're hearing about John the Baptist baptizing and people coming out and now he's having a following and so they've got to go out and inspect what's going on like what in the world is happening this John the Baptist who's claiming to be this Elijah that's preparing the way for the Lord to come the Messiah to come we've got to go out there and see what's going on and so they come out to see John and they have some choice he has some choice words for them John gives us a lesson in how to win friends and influence people. Right? <laughs> he says this to them, you brood of vipers. Good starting phrase, right? You want to you encourage both sides of the party? Just start out with you brood of vipers, right? Like he is saying you are the offspring, brood, of vipers, of a snake. What do you think he's implying there, right? Like he's probably implying you are the offspring of the evil one. You're the offspring of the devil. You're the offspring of Satan. So it's like, welcome one, come one all, come, come all, right? He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So they knew if the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God was coming, that that meant not just peace, but it also meant war. It meant that the wrath of God was coming as well. And so he says like, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you coming out to see this? He says in verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says to them, show and tell. 
right? If you're coming out here to hear what I'm having to say, then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What was that? In that context, get baptized, right? Like renounce your sinful ways, renounce that you think you're right, that you're doing everything right. Renounce that and say, I believe that the kingdom of heaven is near, that, that God is sending the prophet to come. God is sending his son to come. Believe that. And so he says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse nine, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Again, what a good guy, right? Like just encouraging them in the word. He says to them, listen, I know you're, you're seeing what I'm doing and thinking like I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to get baptized. Not going to do that, right? Like that's for Gentiles. That's for that audience. But I want you to know because you think you're from the seed of Abraham and that you're okay, you're not okay. Because God has the power to raise up children from these rocks. So don't be relying on your religious beliefs or your religious heritage to say, I'm good. Yeah, that's good. Then he goes on and says in verse 10, even now, he gets real serious with him. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's what he's saying to them. Listen, men, judgment is on the way. And you think because you're a good Jewish person that you're gonna be okay. And the reality is the ax is already at the root of the tree. And he uses this term thrown into fire and the fire in scripture is often used as the judgment of God. So he's saying to them strong language that the judgment of God is coming and you better repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. In verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But Jesus who is coming, we know after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And he says to them, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he says, those who believe in Jesus will be baptized, they'll be immersed with the Holy Spirit. So when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we were immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and lives inside of us. So we are the temple of God. The presence of God is with us through the Holy Spirit. So he says, when he comes and baptized, you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, fire. Now, there's some different translations of this idea of fire. Is, is he referring to the fire at Pentecost that came on them, on their tongues, and that he used as... I would say, and I think based off the context of Matthew chapter 3 and the reading that I've done, this is the fire of judgment. Because why would John be talking about the fire of judgment before and he's going to talk about the fire of judgment now and switch his way of thinking? So what he is saying to these 
Pharisees and these Sadducees is he's saying, some of you, if you repent and, and, and know that the kingdom of heaven is near, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. But for those of you that don't repent, you're going to get fire. You're going to get the judgment of God. He goes on to expound on this. He says in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this is what he says to these men who he's called brood of vipers. He's saying to these men, you're basically the shaft that's going to burn. That when God, when, when they would take this wheat, they would throw it up in the air, the wind would blow through, the heavy grain would come back down and the shaft would blow and land outside of, of, of the, the, the thing that he was using to throw it up. And so at the end of the day, they would gather all of that and they would throw it and use it to kindle the fire. And so he's saying to these men, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent and know that the kingdom of heaven is near. These are heavy words to a religious audience that believed that they had it all figured out. Then you come, so this is the preparation then you come to the affirmation in verses 13 through 17. So this is, I almost missed that whole section of my message, which would not have been good. <laughs> verses 13 through 17 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And I love John here because that wouldn't you be the same way, Right. Like if you see the Messiah, you see the anointed one, the king coming, and he comes to you and says, I want to be baptized by you. It'd be like, mm, like I, I think the roles are being switched here, right? Like, like I think you need to baptize me. And that's what, so we see the heart of John. Again, it's not about him. It's not his story. And so he's like, this is your story. You should really be baptizing me. You should be the one that is putting me in the water and, and taking me out of the water. But then Jesus says to him in verse 15, let it be so now. Basically, John, do what I'm telling you to do, right? It's a nice way to say that. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says, then John consented. So Jesus says, this is the plan that God has. The plan that God has is that you're going to prepare the way and you're going to baptize me. Now, why did Jesus need to be baptized? This is a good question for us to ask in this moment. And I think it's in that statement to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness has the idea of doing the right thing. And so he says, we, we, got, we need to go through with this process because we need to fulfill all righteousness. This is the plan that God has set up and we need to fulfill that plan. So let me give you three reasons why Jesus was baptized. The first reason was Jesus was baptized to identify with us. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, for our sake, Jesus 
For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jesus came, we know that he was perfect, right? That he never sinned, but he identified with us. Hebrews says that he understood our weaknesses. So although Jesus never sinned, he identified with us. And that's what's going on in his baptism is that he is identifying with us as he would call us in Matthew 28, 19 to go make disciples and baptize them. That as we follow him in baptism, where he, he was identifying with us in that. It also showed of his death and resurrection, that this is what he had come for. That Jesus had come to lay down his life. So as he would go into the water, the idea of baptism in the Greek is to dip or immerse or to plunge into. And so the word, the picture is that Jesus went into the water and came out of the water. It's what he's going to do for us on the cross. So he was in a way showing to his audience, this is what is about to happen. I'm about to give my life for you and to go into a grave and come out of the grave. And Romans 6 Verses three and four help us see that. That even as we are baptized, it says we're identifying with Christ in his death. And as we're raised, we're identifying with him in this new life. And so it was an example of his death and uh, resurrection that were about to come. This, the third thing is it was an example for us to follow. So in Matthew chapter 28, as I mentioned, verse 19, when he says, go make disciples of all na nations, baptizing them, we know what that means because we've seen his baptism in Matthew chapter 3. We know that Jesus was immersed in the water and came out of the water. And so his baptism points us to an example to follow. So this is why Jesus was baptized. It wasn't that he was a sinner and he needed to repent of his sins and publicly declare his faith in God. No, it was that he was, he was identifying with us because he would call us to do that. He, would, he was showing and, and predicting what he would do for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he was giving us an example to follow. And then in verse 16 and 17, we have one of the sweetest moments in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is affirmed by the Holy Spirit and God. And it says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is really a beautiful picture of the Trinity being put on full display for us. So in the Trinity, we know that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, who is present at Jesus' baptism? Well, obviously, God the Son is present, right? Jesus is the one being baptized. And he says, we need to do this because we need to fulfill all righteousness. Then we see that God the Spirit is present in, in when it says, and when he saw the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, the question that I would have for the text is, okay, so we see the, we see the Son and we see the Spirit, but did Jesus not have the Spirit before he was baptized? 
Like, so when it says that the, the dove, a picture of the spirit descended on him, did he not have the spirit before that? Well, I, I would propose to you that you go back to Matthew, uh, the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter one, when the Holy Spirit is the one that places the seed of Jesus into Mary, right? So I would propose that the spirit was already being upon, was already in Jesus at this moment. But this is a visible sign to everyone present that the Spirit is going to use Jesus to accomplish what is set before him. I would say this because if you go to Isaiah 61 and verse 1, it has this idea of the Spirit coming upon him in a public display of I am with Jesus. I am going to use Jesus to accomplish the will that I have for him. So the Spirit descends on Jesus in this moment. So we've seen God the Son, We've seen God the Spirit, and now, the last verse, we see God the Father. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42. And I'd encourage you to go out and read Isaiah chapter 42. And you will see that this is a fulfillment of that. That God the Father is saying, opening the heavens and verbalizing to his son, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the one that I have chosen to fulfill my plan to bring the kingdom of heaven here. This is him. He is the Messiah that you have been waiting for. This is God the Father's way to affirm to those present, John the Baptist and those that were watching, that this was his son and he was going to do what he said he was going to do. So as Jesus comes out of the 27-year shadow, 27 years of living in the shadows, you see his inauguration through the preparation of John the Baptist and the affirmation of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what is our response then to Matthew chapter three? How do we respond to this inauguration of Jesus with his preparation and his affirmation? What's interesting is that you find, as you continue to read through the pages of scripture, that this same word, that John the Baptist preached. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus will preach. In the book of Acts, as the early church begins its journey, that the pastors, the leaders, the, the, the uh, men that were leading that early church, what they will preach. And as you go through the pages of scripture, you find this theme repeated over and over and over again. And then you come to the last book of the Bible and the book of Revelation, and you find Jesus speaking to these seven seven churches and five of the seven churches, he says the same thing to. So what is our response to Matthew chapter three? It's the same thing that will continue to be the response is to repent and believe in Jesus. Repent, turn from your sin to Jesus and believe in him, trust in him. That's what the early church, they'll preach, repent and believe in Jesus. Repent, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. The same reality is still true 
for us today. That God has you in this room to hear this message today of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism so that you would repent and believe in Jesus. That you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. That you would turn from a life of emptiness, a life that leads to death, a life that leads to separation from God forever in a place called hell to Jesus where there is life and there is peace and there is hope and there is life eternal with him in a place called heaven. Repent and believe in Jesus. How do you do that? Romans chapter 10 answers that question for us when it says this in verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, when we say with our mouth, Jesus, you are right. You are the king. You are the one who needs to be the ruler of my life. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in the, our heart that God raised him from the dead, we believe that Jesus did what he said he did. That he lived the life that you and I couldn't live and died the death that we deserved to die and rose again, coming back to life. That Jesus did that. If we believe in our heart, the Bible says you will be saved. Amen. You'll be, that word saved, rescued. Rescued from what? Not only an empty life, but an unquenchable fire. To have to experience the judgment of God for eternity. Why wouldn't we repent and believe? today if you sit in this room and you sort of bow up to that I would beg of you to believe in Jesus I would beg of you to repent of your sin and turn to him this is not a game is not something we do to fill time. Life and death are on the line. And for those of you who have repented and you've believed in Jesus, I would call you as Jesus called those churches to repent and return to your first love. You see, there's always this pull until Jesus comes and eradicates the enemy forever and throws Satan into the fires of hell to lock the gate and never open it again, we struggle. And we always want to go back to that thing that we've repented of. So church, I would call us to repent and believe in Jesus. To let not sin reign in our mortal bodies, right? But to put on Jesus. To put on his life, his way. And to know that is where life and peace are found. In this life, and we know it to be in the life to come. Father, thank you for the strong words of John the Baptist. We laugh and joke about how to win friends and influence people and 
I think that's one thing that set John apart is he wasn't really concerned about what man would think of him because he knew the destination of men apart from God, apart from you. So thank you for the boldness of John the Baptist to preach, repent. Thank you that we could see in your word today that you affirmed the mission of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through his baptism, through the Holy Spirit, through you speaking verbally in that moment to say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Thank you for choosing your son to send, to live the life that you and I couldn't live on our own, to die the death, Lord, that, that we deserved to die. We deserve to take the wrath of God on the cross, but you took that for us so that we could know you. And so I pray today that if there's anyone in this room that has not repented of their sin and turned to you. Their life has not been transformed by you. May they follow the words of Romans chapter 10 and verse nine. May they confess with their mouth that you are Lord and may they believe in their heart that you did that for them. And the Bible promises, you promise, they will be saved. And for those of us who have done that, forgive us. For when we begin to turn back to the things, the former way of life, not what we were made for. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to repent and return to our first love, which is you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.